0: Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Montel Weekly Podcast, bringing energy matters in an informal setting. As the war in the Ukraine shows no sign of abating, this week's episode will look at the bigger geopolitical picture. Have we shifted into a new global order, a new period where China and Russia assert themselves on the global stage? And what does this mean for energy markets, particularly for the coming winter in Europe and beyond? Helping me, Richard Sparrison, to discuss this and much, much more is Henning Gleusteyn of, of Eurasian Group. Uh, a warm welcome to you, Henning.
1: Thank you, Richard. Thanks for having me.
0: I wanted to start off by sort of looking at the, the bigger geopolitical picture, as, as, I, as I talked about in the intro. Uh, are we now in a new phase, Henning? Is there a resurgent China, an aggressive Russia?
1: Well, I mean, in terms of the conflict, the war in Ukraine, we actually think we're in this sort of stuck in the mud when this... Um, uh, messy stalemate which uh, won't see a resolution anytime soon uh russia itself of course has uh has you know changed its role in the geopolitical uh uh on the geopolitical stage quite dramatically this year from being a uneasy partner at the start of the year or late last year to being hostile to the west um now and that won't change anytime soon china seems to be sitting on the fence um, China certainly is very unhappy with what's going on in the, uh, on the ground, but they can't come out openly in support of the United States. That's, that's not within um, the Chinese uh, doctrine at the moment. Um, but they're certainly unhappy with how things are going because uh, it has uh, caused all sorts of supply chain stress, commodity uh, import uh, price surges, LNG, coal, oil have all become furiously expensive. Um, and of course, uh, China is seen to be a little bit of a facilitator of the war in Ukraine by supporting uh, Russia even tacitly, and that is not going down well in the European Union. And it's worth keeping in mind that China and the EU are each other's biggest trading partners. So uh, China is not happy with this situation, but they can't come out openly in support of the West either. But we think they would like some form of a resolution to the conflict. Um, uh, But you know, like everyone else, they don't really see where that's going to go and how that's going to happen.
0: Isn't it also sort of tacitly in support of Russia and doesn't it stand to gain from that in some sense? I mean, some some preferential uh, gas deals, for example, Some, you know, if the pipe, pipe gas is not going to flow to Europe in the same way it has done, will it now not flow
1: east instead? Yeah, for sure. Um, you're absolutely right. So uh, China will try and um, profit from this crisis Um Maybe not the right term, but, uh, uh, you know, strike deals. Uh, All the assets that Western companies have left behind in Russia, um, there's a lot of them, oil and gas assets that uh, stand to be snapped up by anybody else. The Chinese might try. Some folks in the Middle East might do as well. Um, but, uh, yeah, so China will try and um, uh, get access to some of those assets. And for sure, I mean, Gazprom is almost certainly going to lose virtually all of its European customers in the gas market, which currently make up 80 percent of its export revenues. Um, they, they can't switch those to China anytime soon, but uh, they will uh, build new pipelines um, to, to China and the Chinese will buy that Russian gas and we think the Russians will find out the hard way that the Chinese will buy this gas on Chinese terms because they know exactly that Russia can't sell it to anybody else at this stage. So this will be um, a hard deal for Russia, but absolutely. And China will uh, pay for those in uh, for that gas probably in yuan and not in US dollar. So they'll they'll try and benefit from this. Yeah. Uh, and they won't pay in rubles then. You don't think? Now, while they might do some form of uh, the, the adjustment, right? like Gazprom is demanding in Europe now, so make the payment in whatever, euro, euro or dollar, but then uh, transfer it into ruble um, in Russia. But I mean, I don't think the Chinese care about that very much. But the, the initial payment will almost certainly be made in, in yuan.
0: Right. And um, what, you, what you said about... The the current status of the war, you know, you see it as a very much a stalemate. Tenny. could you enunciate a little bit what what you what you mean here?
1: Yeah, so we, we our base case for the next three months is uh, a messy stalemate, which um, uh, is is literally just that. It's uh, the Russians will not be able to totally defeat the Ukrainian forces over the next couple of months. Uh, likewise, the Ukrainians will not be able to uh, push Russian forces out of all of Ukraine. Um, and even if suddenly as some do suspect Russia declared some form of a ceasefire and suddenly said oh look um we, you know we now have all the we uh the territory we wanted we have freed uh, russian speaking ukraine from from so called neo nazis whatever um that would not be a ceasefire that uh, zelensky in ukraine can tolerate or the west so it would be a ceasefire that would be highly uh, a threat of being broken uh, continuously so um uh, and hence fighting would Continue in some form. So that is what we mean with a messy stalemate. Um, we give that currently in a base case scenario of 70% uh, for the next three months, 25% escalation, which gets scary. And it doesn't sound like much 25%, but 25% escalation from an already very escalated conflict is not a nice prospect. And only 5% of a full diplomatic solution. Like I say, that would not mean a ceasefire that could be broken anytime soon, but full, 5% chance of some. Uh, un- totally unforeseen situation occurring in which a full um, uh, uh, semi-peaceful situation could be achieved. So we don't give that a high possibility at the moment, but never say never.
0: Yeah, but that's, uh, you know, sadly a very, very low possibility at the moment. But this mess is stalemate. How long do you think uh, it can continue? I mean, are we in for the long haul? The, the situation that Donbass and the eastern Ukraine has lasted since 2014, uh, you know, could this last... Uh... Eight years? Could it last out the decade?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess that is the fear that it lasts till 2024 or longer. So uh, you know, last a decade. So that could be some of the continuing stalemate that you see. It's a frozen conflict uh, that it gets stuck in time. This could happen fairly easily uh, without anybody wanting it. Uh, so uh, that you know, the, the Ukrainian forces are getting stronger in terms of equipment. Um, But, I mean, they're not getting, uh, you know, they're also getting tired. Uh, Once the summer ends and uh, autumn, the fall starts, things get wet and cold again, uh, then conflict literally can get frozen uh, or stuck in the mud physically. Um, Russia might not be able to escalate much further without a general mobilization of his forces, which um, President Vladimir Putin clearly wants to avoid because that would... uh, uh, call into doubt his special military organi- um, operation and openly have to declare war. Um, and yeah, uh, and absent a, a negotiated peace, which still, as I, as I say, looks a bit unlikely, uh, that is exactly the risk. And then suddenly you're talking the conflict going on into 2023. Um, and then, well, then, you know, we're not far from that decade.
0: Mm, absolutely. I mean, I, I was thinking more in terms of, you know, the, the war in the Donbass has already lasted eight years. Could this present conflict last eight years as well, but uh, I mean, think, who knows?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think your guess is as good as mine, and I, I really don't <laughs> think anybody knows. I, I think in the Pentagon and in Brussels, and I'm not even sure in the Kremlin, they have a clear idea of how this is going to end. And that is the disaster here, of course, because Russia clearly thought it could end this with shock and awe in three days, create facts on the ground before the West can even react, replace the government in Kiev and be done with it. And they didn't manage that. And now they're all frozen and nobody can back down. And that is a problem. Absolutely. But what, if we can bring this into energy, uh, Glennie, uh, Glennie,
0: Henning? What, what does this mean for European energy markets and even global energy markets? Now we're talking China and, 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 and Asian demand, which has always been a, a key driver in,
1: in, in gas prices. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the main thing, what we're seeing here is the, the phasing out of Russian oil, gas and coal is going to happen in Europe and it's going to be complete um, and it's going to, you know, happen faster than anyone thought possible only a few months ago, but it'll still take a time um, to, to, to be fully completed. So, and because it's oil, gas, and coal, this means that the operational cost for the entire energy industry globally will remain pretty high for some time because the Europeans, for the first time, are raising their coal imports again. They have to buy LNG from all over the world, they have to buy oil from anywhere that's not Russia. And that just, op, you know, the OPEX costs uh, remains high because of that. Then the CAPEX costs is sky high as well, because the Europeans have to invest uh, huge sums of money into new LNG facilities, especially the Germans. But also the Netherlands, the French, the Italians, the Polish all building uh, import terminals or chartering floating um, import facilities like FSRUs. Uh, and at the same time, they're expanding their green transition, hydrogen, offshore wind, solar. This costs gazillions. Um, and a lot, so that, that CapEx cost is going up and a lot of that CapEx is borrowed money. And because the cost of borrowing is rising because of um, increasing um, interest rates around the world, that cost is com- added uh, on top of that. So we, we are facing sort of this swollen energy supply chain costs for the next few years. And this is why you look at the, let's say the TTF forward curves in the Netherlands or the oil forward curve. I mean, you know, Brent uh, is is above a hundred dollars. I think for the next two years. And um, gas prices are, are sky high for the next two years as well. So th- this is what we're facing. Even if there was some form of a negotiated solution, the the decisions made in the European energy sector are so profound that they can't really be reversed anymore. And that's going to cost a lot of money. And that's being felt around the world. There's diesel shortages in South America. Uh, in, in we've just seen in Pakistan, um, uh, LNG supply that's destined for Pakistan has been rerouted to Europe, uh, causing power shortages in Pakistan. Uh, just because of what's going on in Europe. And um, so this is going to be with us for a while.
0: So it's creating sort of ripples globally. Absolutely. But if, I, I'm just in, but if we're focusing on, on LNG, for example, so you're saying that a lot of several European countries, Germany, Netherlands, France, are going to invest in LNG terminals, whether they're floating or not. But surely there's a danger here. You lock in um, a fossil fuel infrastructure for many years to come. I mean... You know, no one's going to sign an LNG contract, you know, long term for three or five years. I mean, people want long term stability here. So, is there a danger that it, to to combat this need to substitute Russian fossil fuel, we are actually locking in to a long term high emission scenario?
1: That's indeed a, a risk. Absolutely. Um, like on the LNG LNG side, you, you're actually seeing a lot of uh, contract negotiations ongoing. And it's exactly like you say, the Europeans don't want to sign new 20, 25-year long-term contracts uh, without uh, 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 w- with destination clauses in- under which they can't resell the LNG. They want to sa- sign 8 to maybe 12-year LNG contracts with full supply flexibility, which the sellers say, no, 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 that's not a good idea because we need uh, long-term investment stability. So they're going to have to find a compromise. We reckon what will happen is uh, that in return for Either more flexibility, so that means that Europeans can resell LNG once their demand goes down amongst the accelerated green transition, uh, i.e. there will be no destination clause. Um, they, uh, in return for more flexibility, they pay a higher base price, average price, or in return for a shorter contract period, let's say 10 years rather than 20, they pay a uh, um, higher price as well. Something like that will happen Um, Because for sure, the sellers want to sign the best deals possible and the buyers as well. But um, the reality is there's an enormous demand opportunity for the next 5 to 10, 12 years in Europe. And um, most people in the supply side industry, in the LNG sector, don't want to miss it. So they will probably sign a few um, compromises. But I mean, you're right. It's going to cause lots of all, all sorts of weird problems because what we will be seeing is uh, lng supply will increase the qataris will have their Northfield expansion essentially financed by the europeans and probably in particular the germans The us lng expansion will also be co-financed by europe so we'll have a, more capacity but at the same time the europeans are investing billions actually hundreds of billions into demand destruction ripping out gas boilers at home and uh, ev uh, and electric um, and renewables and hydrogen and so forth so actually natural gas consumption in europe will not increase it's just lng Imports will increase to replace Russian gas, but overall demand in Europe will start to decrease quite fast in the latter half of this decade. And uh, that could actually cause a deflationary energy price pressure uh, in the latter half of this decade after this surge that we're seeing now. So it's really awkward.
0: Yeah, but that's only at the sort of latter half of this decade,
1: then. Yeah, yeah, it's not immediate. Al- although there is a bit of a risk uh, even this year and we're, we're probably uh, going to do something on this quite soon, uh, a EU group, uh, is what happens if Russian gas isn't interrupted this year? I mean, they've, you know, Europe's uh, uh, record LNG imports maximized all other pipeline imports. If Russian gas continues to flow and uh, inventories are full by late mid-August, late August, what happens to the gas price here? Uh, and then uh, what happens to US LNG? It gets priced out, doesn't it? Hmm. But I mean, that's okay. a what if. We'll see. <laughs> we'll worry about that then, I guess. Yeah,
0: but I mean, um, I mean, what are your expectations here? You know, you've seen the seen flows um, cut off to to Poland, to Bulgaria, to to Finland. I mean, have you had any kind of analysis on who could be next?
1: Well, so uh, indeed, so when this started to happen, and the Russians made true on their threat that um, anyone who doesn't adjust their payment gets cut off. Um, the, the obvious, most obvious one was Finland, you know, for joining NATO and uh, having just completed a nuclear power station and a new floating energy import terminal. and But I mean, overall, Gazprom has now pretty much made clear that anyone who doesn't change their payment mechanism, according to their will, will be cut off. Um, but those who have switched their payment system, which most uh, major importers in Germany, Austria and Italy, which are the big ones, have done, um, Gazprom has pretty much called up and said, We, on our books, we will continue supplying you. And that is why these um, importers did that. They swallowed a bitter pill, a humble pill of giving into basically blackmail. Uh, The public doesn't like it. The shareholders don't like it. But they thought it was crucial to secure supply. So they did it. Um, And then that is their hope that they will continue receiving uh, the, the gas from Russia until their contracts expire, most of them around 2027. Um but, of course, there's still a risk. I mean if the situation in Ukraine deteriorates even further, as in the war escalates or, um then and Europe might have to think about sanctions which they currently really don't want to do, but um they might have to do that, or if Putin really wants to retaliate the Europeans, he could cut off themselves so there's still a risk absolutely of a, we have a lot of off.
0: lot of the only certainty is the amount of uncertainty out there, but uh exactly um um but Henning, I know you said you're going to be working on on looking at, at this and the the possibility that Russian flows could could just continue throughout the uh, the autumn potentially the winter. What, what's the probability of that remaining rather unchanged?
1: Uh, well, that's the problem with the uncertainty, isn't it? Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah. we haven't put a probability to it. We chickened out. Um, yeah, okay. Uh, but so so the, we 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 want to raise that possibility because. As I said, Gazprom seems to have assured uh, its major customers who have switched their payment that they will continue to receive gas. Um, And there are some folks in the EU uh, um, who actually think that Putin might be seeking a climb down at some point this summer. Um, That would still fall in an uneasy stalemate, as I said earlier, even if Putin declared a unilateral ceasefire, it's it's no guarantee that Ukraine would uh, would abide by it. And it could be broken um, all time. But there is a chance that this happens, that Putin does that in order to stall the sanctions process. Because it's very possible that if he declared a ceasefire, that some folks in the EU would say, well, OK, to to show our willingness to negotiate and compromise, maybe we should halt the oil oil sanctions and, and promise not to do anything on gas. And that would, of course, be very much in Russia's favor. Um, And uh, so there's a a possibility of that. Uh, The other thing is, of course, and we don't really know whether this is true, but uh, one of the most effective ways for Russia and for Gazprom to really basically hurt the US LNG industry is to collapse the European gas price, to just, you know, fill the inventories. And then all these um, fancy uh, US LNG export uh, projects that were hoping to make a lot of money in Europe... Um, are priced out because it's worth keeping in mind, the US gas prices are pretty high by US standards, $9 per mmbtu BTU for Henry Hub. Um, so basically, European gas price can't be much higher than $15 per MBTU um, uh, in order for US gas to be profitable in Europe. And in the UK, they're already at that level. In, in Europe, they're still high in, in the EU, but it's, it's not unimaginable. And so maybe this is what Gazprom's planning. The problem is we don't know.
0: <laughs> exactly and maybe maybe they don't know yet either that but, is also possible um, <laughs> yeah so but you know the expectation i mean we, we can see as well in july that Nord Stream one is due to go offline for for maintenance yeah do you think there's a danger here that the powers that be could extend that just to show put the frighteners uh, into some of the, the european gas market players
1: for sure. I mean, Der Spiegel in Germany reported that yesterday. And then they had a Twitter exchange with the head of the German uh, uh, Bundesnetzagentur, the grid agency. Um, yeah, I mean, that is the, the the fear, the concern, the suspicion that a gas will say, oops, something broke and that outage will not be two weeks, but five. Um, and then you tighten the European market. But of course, that does also attract LNG from the US back in then. And that, that goes back to what I just mentioned. A gas bomb could do that and just you know show like mm, just ahead winter the market might get really tight and you really need our gas uh, very unfortunate um uh, or they could say no look um and try and divide Europe again and say like no no we're gonna fix this really fast and uh, we're gonna um, uh, continue putting gas into storage and uh, it's or oh, everything is fine um, so sadly again it's a total unknown and that but this is the problem because what this creates is a really awkward situation for utilities in Europe. Um, you are having to plan for two total extremes. One of them is a total outage of Russian gas next winter, which could even mean energy rationing and record prices. Um, the other one could be, if, not, if, if there's no further disruptions, is that gas prices collapse. And then a lot of, especially the private utilities, who had to import gas at record prices this year, have to sell it back into the market next winter at much lower prices, which means big financial losses. And um, so it's really, it's, it's, it's not a nice situation for European utilities at the moment.
0: Absolutely. I mean, we saw quite a lot of bankruptcies of suppliers and of, of some energy companies as prices moved upwards. But you, what you're saying here is that we could see quite a lot if that, this situation were to arise where Russia were to, were to flood the market with, with gas, it could happen on the same... Thing. Yeah. it The flip side of the coin, if you like.
1: Exactly. And there's a bit of a risk here so that if that happened... Um, Uh, some utilities might be really reluctant to pass on price drops to consumers because they actually had to pay for the wholesale gas at really high prices. Now they're having to sell it back at low prices. They might be really reluctant to do that. And this is, you know, we're political analysts. This is politically quite toxic because the public will then get really angry with um, their local utilities and the governments will probably jump on that bandwagon again and they might threaten taxes or, or cap tariffs or who knows what. Um, whereas there, some of the reality on the ground might be that um, this situation caused real financial pain because the utilities had to buy the gas at high prices and then sell it at low prices, which is commercially not a good idea for them. So, and so it could really fast become quite political. yeah
0: And this is of course very speculative as well because yeah. you know it's 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 a as as we said several times it's a vast unknown. But if, if we meant talk about the sellers of the LNG, you you mentioned. Uh, The U.S., uh, Qatar. Are there others out there that you know? And there are huge uh, gas reserves off the coast of East Africa, for example. Do you expect that to be uh, put into production uh, as a result of what's happening um, in Europe or or the price situation globally?
1: So yeah, I mean, this is a scramble to meet this uh, uh, additional European energy demand. I mean, the best you mentioned the two best. Um, uh, suited supply for that are the US. It's short cycle production. There's a lot of export capacity that was already vying for financial in- uh, final in- uh, investment decision, FID, um, and that will get it now. And, uh, you know, it's a EU-US uh, strategic LNG alliance, NATO partners, Freedom Gas, wonderful. Um, Qatar was recently uh, very conveniently uh, declared, designated officially by the US government, a major non-NATO ally, which makes uh, business a lot easier for them. German, uh, uh, you know, Uh, Vice-Chancellor, Green Party member of all things, uh, turned up in Qatar to negotiate LNG deals, uh, unimaginable four months ago. Um, So you can see Qatar with its North Field expansion will happen. So US first, then Qatar, um, and any extra molecules Norwegians have, great. Uh, East Africa is a a mixed bag because, as we said earlier, um, if the Europeans only want to sign contracts sort of 8 to 12 years, maybe in Poland 20 years to replace all the coal there, but not really. There's no big commitment beyond 2035. That makes greenfield offshore production really hard to sell into Europe. Let's say Tanzania. If you uh, are another five to seven years away from first production, and then you need 30 years or 25 years to make a return on investment, then the European window doesn't really fit. Mozambique, I assume they're going to have to try and they'll, they'll try and get it up and running as fast as possible because they're well advanced, but they, of course, have domestic security issues. Uh, the one I would look out for is actually East Mediterranean. Um, Israel has a lot of gas. Uh, and Israel doesn't need that much gas itself. And uh, they do have the deal with uh, Egypt now, so if they could somehow raise uh, Egypt's export capacity, even by a little bit, that would be very convenient to go to Italy, for instance, or Greece.
0: Interesting. I mean... I just I'd like to just finish off Henning by by looking at, at Germany and you mentioned this 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 green minister going to Qatar to sign LNG deals or to look for LNG deals. I mean, this is quite extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, I think uh, what's happening here, what 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 is Germany's LNG plans going forward, you know, in the middle of, you know, it's it's quite ambitious targets to to reduce emissions quite drastically as well as um closing down its
1: nuclear plants. Yeah, I mean, Germany is in a bit of a pickle, isn't it? Um, First of all, they can't say they weren't warned. Uh, First of all, you know, Nord Stream 1, then Nord Stream 2. uh, uh, I mean, uh, but it goes much deeper than this, it goes beyond the gas sector. I mean, Germany uh, built this uh, extraordinary reliance on Russian pipeline gas, but it also built an extraordinary reliance on Russian Urals crude oil, which, of course, in all the diesel developments of the last 20 years, um, that so many German passenger cars run on diesel. It's all Russian uh, oil, which was seen as very convenient and cheap. So it's an oil and gas problem that Germany got itself into. And um, it worked really well for a long time, and now it really doesn't work well at all. It doesn't work. And they they have to do absolutely everything. I mean, for all, all the problems that this has caused, they have actually remarkably ch- fast managed to put in new supply chains on the oil side and the gas side. They're looking quite fast and quite... Successful now, they're fast tracking LNG import terminals. As far as I know, four floating uh, facilities have been ordered, and at least one, but uh, probably two um, fixed facilities will be built over the next few years. Costs a lot of money. Um, the only upside to this is uh, that uh, the fixed terminals will be probably designed in a way that they can be flipped to import liquid ammonia. Uh, from the mid-late 2020s, which, uh, I mean, the Germans and the Australians have uh, already signed their um, hydrogen ammonia deal and similar talks are in place with Canada um, and Norway. So uh, these will be uh, flipped around from LNG to ammonia at some point. Again, but it all costs money. And, um, uh, and yeah, but that's the, I mean, that's the reality. reality. The, the, the status quo uh, receiving um, cheap and reliable, which it was for a long time, uh, oil and gas from Russia, that business model is gone. And then now Germany needs to invest a lot of money in rebuilding new business models and supply chains. And there's no other way to it.
0: Absolutely. But the industry in the utility sector, the, the, the big energy companies are saying, no, 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 we need to take this a bit slowly. Whereas on the ground, I'm sure there's a lot of political pressure to cut. Cut off uh, all all fossil fuels from Russia tomorrow.
1: Yeah, uh, and so it's the, the political side will win out on this, and uh, corporations uh, the, will have to adjust. It's as simple as that. Some of them have already quietly uh, swallowed the pill and said, "All right, let's get on with it." And some of it will uh, be forced or uh, by either by their shareholders or by the government itself directly. Uh, but it, this is the way it's going to be. Uh, uh, Germany will phase out all of Russia's oil, gas, and coal. I mean, coal, coal's pretty much done. Oil will be done by the end of this year, and gas will be done much earlier than most people suspect. My suspicion is it will be without a disruption next, some point later, half of next year. With a disruption, will be this year. But um, uh, and it will happen. Um, it doesn't matter what the companies say. There. Uh, that, that that this horse has left the stables.
0: Penning. Thank you very much for joining the Montel Weekly Podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, listeners, you can now follow the podcast on our own Twitter account, aptly named the Montel Weekly Podcast. Please direct message any suggestions, questions, or, you know, let us know if you if you think you have a good idea for a guest on the show. You can also send us an email to podcast at montelnews.com. Lastly, remember to keep up to date with all that's happening in energy markets on Montel News. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thank you and goodbye.